Hey, everybody. Welcome to an attorney and an accountant walk into a bar. I'm John. I'm the attorney and my buddy here. I'm Kent, and I'm the accountant. Hey, what are we talking about today, Kent? Uh, it's the landlord's dilemma, specifically in California. Let's get into it. John, I'll be quite, I'll be quite honest. You know, <laughs> well, when it comes to uh, the landlord, especially when it comes to evictions uh, in the state of California, and more particularly the city of Los Angeles, or for that matter, San Francisco, Berkeley, these places, um, the regulatory landscape has gotten to be quite complicated, and it's very difficult for a landlord to evict people, especially without you know professional help. I find that it um, is so onerous. For a landlord to even, uh, it's it's almost as if it, it's a privilege to provide housing uh, to someone else, and the fact that they pay you is a privilege to the landlord that they actually, in fact, get paid for you know providing housing. There's been a lot of movements for just abolish rent. Well, that seems to be uh, the position of our legislature, and you know, more particularly our city councils and places like that in California have become particularly. Um, sensitive, so we say, to tenants' rights without thinking a lot about landlords' rights. And it's not, you know, most people think of that in terms of, of, of RSO or rent stabilization ordinances, more commonly referred to as rent control. Uh, oftentimes they'll consider, you know, rent control to be the problem. Oh, rent control, rent control, you know, I'm not getting as enough rent. Well, you know, really, rent control, even though it's a pain, is probably less of an issue for evicting people and just keeping your cash flow going than the just cause ordinances, which are in place now, which which are, are really much worse because, you know, rent control, there is, you know, there has to be an allowance for a reasonable return. There's ways to petition to raise the rent. There's mm -hmm. always a certain amount you can raise it each year, except during COVID and things so, like that. So what's it like on your side as an attorney uh, working with landlords. So from an accountant, I see uh, potential reductions in cap rate. I see, uh, you know, some modifications in terms of uh, the ability for folks to depreciate various assets. Um, I see that lowered market rents, uh, potential lowered market rents or um, non-payment of rents during the eviction process really affecting cap rates on uh, multi-units. And now I'm not even talking about, you know, the large Avalon complexes with hundreds, hundreds of units. Really, I, I feel like the devastation is, is happening on the bulk of, we'll call it the middle um, management of two to four units, two to six units, Mon Pa um, owned units, either inherited units, and it has a devastating effect, at least from an accounting standpoint. What are you seeing on, what are you seeing on the law side? Well, I mean, the effect on the accounting side is, is a consequence of the law side, which is our inability or, or to evict tenants. I mean, vacancy and collection losses used to run, I know you tell me, 4 or 5% was usually mm -hmm. what you baked into you know, appraisals. Uh, I've seen vacancy and collection losses as high as 25 and 30%, especially like to your point on the mom and pa operations, because if you've got four units and you have one tenant that's not paying, that's a 25% loss, Absolutely. right? Or you know, potentially mm -hmm. more if it's one of the bigger units. So uh, one non-paying unit 
can just destroy the cash flow on a comp on, on a smaller unit and if you get two of them and they're not doing it well you probably can't even make your mortgage at that point so really really heavy impact and and again so there was all the COVID stuff, right? Where you couldn't sure. evict people and people didn't have to pay their rent and then you know they'd have to get caught up on it later. That's pretty much over for the for the large part. It still has some effect on calculating, you know, rent for three days and things like that, but it's pretty well we're not we're in an environment now where we can evict people if they don't pay rent. The problem is that eviction process has gotten to be so complicated and it's so easy to just make one tiny mistake and get set behind months. So you're saying that in, in, the, in the now times, right, the post-COVID times, that if someone doesn't pay rent, that is now justification to actually evict an individual. And is that different between LA County, I think uh, places outside LA County? How does, that, how does that quite differ? Well, it doesn't differ a lot in terms of ability between counties. If someone's not paying their rent, uh, you really can't. So one of the, the nice things about California, one of the, the pluses is mm -hmm. that local governments can't interfere with the summary nature of unlawful detainer. So as much as they'd like to, they can't stop you from evicting someone if they're not paying rent. But what they do is they make the notice procedure and the eviction procedure so complicated that uh, many, many tenants, let's so we say, slip through the the net, right? They slip mm -hmm. through the process. So you end up with taking months and months and months and months, sometimes years, to evict someone uh, because they're able to play fast and loose with, you know, the... Is it just procedure, civil it's procedure? All, it's all procedure. Yeah, and, wow. it, and, it all, and it all starts with a three-day notice, right? If you don't get that three-day notice right, you make one tiny mistake in it. Yeah. Let's say, I'll give you an example. One of the requirements in a three-day notice now is that you have to provide the address and account number for a bank where the rent can be deposited that's within five miles of the tenancy. Wow. That seems very, very specific. It's very specific, and it raises all kinds of questions, right? Mm. What if you're trying to evict someone that's out in the country and there isn't any bank for five miles? What if you don't? What if your bank account for your landlord isn't, you know, it, what if you're at you know farmers and merchants bank and and you're and you don't have an account that's near sure. where the tenancy is it doesn't give you any allowances for that so and most i have to tell you most three-day notices that i've seen that landlords are using from forms and things like that don't have that stuff in it you know it's not i guess it shouldn't be surprising the same lawmakers that are writing tax code are some of the same lawmakers making uh, these rental and landlord uh, uh, landlord rules or rental rules in, in LA County and we find in a lot of these call it qu quickly thrown together uh, statutes uh, to be having a lot of holes in it that require honestly require some level of litigation in order to gain clarity on its use or purpose and then and therefore having iterations to clarify what actually is the the use case or what's how do you how do you follow the letter of the law right there's a letter in the spirit of the law and the idea is that the landlord ends up feeling in Los Angeles or California that why be a landlord? And I, I want to dispel the myth that there's these large corporations renting out and they're profiting anyways because they have two, 300 units you know, in this building. So what's, you know, their rent's too high, which is another topic altogether, you know, the, the cost of living in, in the state that we're in. But I think 
people don't realize that, you know, uh, providing housing, um, smaller landlords, that is a way of making a living. And they truly provide housing, you know, they upkeep a property, and that's how they make a living. The reduction of essentially their income is a direct relation for them to pay their mortgage and provide for their families. Right, you know, and, and rent control and the price of rent, and that's a whole nother discussion. I mean, that isn't even one that hits me as a lawyer because by the time it gets to me, I, I, I don't know what, you know, the rent control and what you're charging for rent and market rent's sort of mm -hmm. irrelevant, right? I'm at the point where, well, the tenant's not paying or the tenant is damaging the property or the tenant is uh, doing illegal activities at the property or they're harassing the other tenants and they're or otherwise causing a nuisance and they need to be evicted. And that's not always just about money, right? Sometimes that's about protecting the other tenants in the building or protecting the management of the building. And that process has gotten crazy. I mean, I'll give you a great, a great example. This is one that just drives me crazy is when it comes to Section 8 stuff. There's actually, to, get, to evict someone in Section 8 housing, whether or not it's a three-day notice or a 30-day notice that you have to use is ambiguous to the point where no one really knows. And, hmm. and here's why. Um, part of the uh, COVID tenant relief stuff that the, the federal government did provided that the Secretary of Housing could uh, invoke an emergency order that required, at least in federally subsidized housing, that you would have to evict on 30 days notice, not three days, for non-payment of rent. Okay. You know, I, good for good or better or worse, I mean, at the time of the emergency, I guess you could say that made sense because you wouldn't want to, you know, throwing people out because they couldn't pay rent and that people didn't have money and, you know. Sure, we were, we're in a pandemic. This, yeah, all Get this crazy it. stuff. So now we're past that, right? Right. So most people would assume, well, you know, uh, President Biden has rescinded the emergency order and therefore it's a three-day notice again. No one really knows because the Secretary of Housing never rescinded the order. The order is still there. Oh. So, so you would have to argue, well, the emergency powers went away, and, but we don't know. We really just don't know. So for safety's sake, at least for my landlords, when we're doing Section 8, I just go with 30 days. Okay. But that extends that timeline. It extends the timeline of non-payment. Yep. It extends and it goes into accounting where we're seeing a, a large reduction of revenue. It's similar to stores, uh, retail stores. It's just a corollary where we have the zero bail, bail policy, for example, in um, LA County. So stores are, are seeing a lot of shrinkage or a lot of theft that's at, on, at scale is causing a massive dent and causing a lot of stores in the West Coast to just, just to shut, uh, shut down. Right to close up shop to decide that's no longer viable to do business, and that's similarly but less spoken about related to landlords. That there's landlords when we're looking at the economics and we're doing the tax work and we're saying, why be a landlord in California? Because the rules that are in place don't provide protections to to the landlord in order for them to run a viable business to provide housing and provide good housing. And we're not talking about being slumlords. We're talking about folks that want to maintain and care for their properties. And guess what? The cost of materials for building, the cost of um, hiring labor to maintain those buildings has all gone up. And at scale, what that does is it increases the cost to provide good housing. Um, and therefore, the cost of housing is rising concurrently. And this is just, I think, the economic um, uh, 
just the economic environment we're in with inflation coming up. That's the that's the that's the norm. But it's hit, I think, the West Coast predominantly uh, in 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 a larger sense because we on the East Coast, the cost of living, and on the West Coast, the cost of living is generally higher. So we get to see amplified effects, right? It's it's I think it's similarly happening across the country, but we're seeing it here amplified because the cost of living next to the ocean and the premium for that causes you know this stratification where we're seeing oh wow one rental unit. Uh, being off the market or not no longer being rentable because it's going through an eviction process causes a pretty significant by percentage devastating effect to the landlord. And I think you and I both know, in fact, we have a mutual client who mm-hmm. has decided that they're getting out of the rent business in at least in LA City, for sure, uh, if not California altogether. And I think the other interesting place that you and I see this since we do a lot of we've had a lot of real estate investments for our wealthy family groups. The capitalization rates outside the state of California are really good. And the ones inside the state of California stink. And you can kind of just look at it. In fact, you know, when we're analyzing real estate investments, we look at it and say, oh, uh, it's, a four, it's a four cap. Oh, that's in L.A. Well, that's not bad. Yeah, no, that's, but we're looking at stuff in Arizona that's a 12 cap. Right? You know, but there's, there's <laughs> lessons along each way because the trade-off in California uh, is – the equity value of the property over time. Uh, I have had a, I've had instance, an instance where a client, two clients, kind of like a tale of two cities here, where one client had a significant portion of investment in the South Bay, and they had smaller units, uh, maybe like 15 to 22 to 4 units, and at some point they, it was self-managed, called it the Ma and Pa um, setup, and it just became a lot of work. Instead of having a management company, they did it on their own, which is, it was admirable. But at some point, they said, you know what? Let's consolidate. We're going to sell those things, move into another state, in this case, uh, in the area of like Virginia or, or Maryland kind of area. And they bought, you know, solid anchored triple nets, you know, to Walgreens, to like to Rite Aids. And they gave, at the time, similar cap rates. But what had happened was, in that, in that terminology, is that go move on five, five to six years five to six years on, the value of that property in South Bay grew exponentially versus the value of the triple nets, the commercial triple nets they had in other states, anchored by great cash flowing tenants, you know, with, 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 with scaled premiums year over year, the COLA adjustments. So had they just maintained the same properties in California, they would probably have doubled or tripled their overall net worth. Well, yeah. I mean, that's certainly why California continues to be the draw, because... Mm-hmm. If the capitalization rates stayed where they are, then all the money would flee California. So clearly the money still that's being spent here and the, and the reason you still buy here is because we're hoping for that appreciation. But, you know, that's unknown. Yeah, but everyone always asks this. Is there a limit? Because if you asked, you know, if you, if you asked me some uh, 10 plus years ago, 15 years ago, what a million dollars gets you? And you're like, that's really expensive. A million dollar house, two million dollar house, and in California these days, that one million dollar mark doesn't actually go very far in terms of square footage, location, and that seems insane. But they go, "Is there a limit?" And the Californians sometimes look to New York and they say, "Hey, that penthouse is going for twelve, fifteen, twenty, thirty, forty million dollars. Is there a limit in in <laughs> in New York City?" And the answer is probably dependent on the economy. 
and and inflation and a lot of other general things. But what what is disturbing is that it also creates a economic or socioeconomic divide across you know the American strata, right? The socioeconomic divide starts to entice those with the highest economic means to be in areas of concentration that are very um, uh, expensive to live, but all those individuals require infrastructure. So those folks that, that are part of the service infrastructure for meals, for transportation, for all that, and those people all have to live in community. The question is, do we, is it gonna be like some, um, like we see in the movies where the wealthy live in these above the cloud high rises and all of a sudden all the, the poppers, you know, the folks, the service folks, and includes you and I, you know, we, we're professional service individuals, you know, living in the, living in the, in the offshoots, you know, um, just living on scraps. Well, that certainly seems to be where we're headed and that is certainly what you hear a lot of people talking about is, you know, the rich are becoming richer and the poor are becoming poorer and that I think is especially acute here in California uh, when you consider the fact that people are leaving the state. I mean, we do have a net loss in population, which is undeniable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's obvious where people are going. They're going to Texas, they're going to Idaho, they're going to Tennessee is another place I've seen people go. Um, and it almost, always boils down to the cost of housing. It really does. I mean, you hear people, they'll, they'll spew things about their politics, but I really don't think that's the main driving force because the first thing you hear from people who move to, say, Texas or Idaho, and I you know, certainly personally have a lot of experience with that, is, oh, my God, it's so cheap here. <laughs> Not, oh, my God, there's people that believe in a, you know, that, that, that hate abortion like I do. That's not what you hear them talk about. You don't hear them say how, how great it is that I'm with other, you know, like-minded conservatives. Yeah. What you hear is, oh, my God, my taxes are less. Oh, my God, my insurance is less. The water bill's like nothing. That's what you hear. Isn't that, I would say that, isn't that attributable to the newness of the geographic region? So if you think about, you know, the idea of Mas Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they got safety and housing, so they're focused on that. And the longer they stay in that region, though, then they get comfortable with that strata. They start to they start to escalate, right? They start to go over that more intellectual needs that need to be satisfied, political desires, you know, things like that. And so well, I think I over think time, that, I think that's probably true. But I, I'm saying is it's just I think that if all other things being equal, mm -hmm. uh, there would be less people leaving California if the economic situation in other states were the oh, same. Oh, regardless of the so, pop. Right. You know, so if you it, if it was the same price for a house and insurance and fuel and every other expense you could think of was the same as Southern California and say Austin, um, not sure too many people be going to Austin. Regardless of politics is what you're saying, right? <laughs> right. Got it. That's well, we have proven that you know San Francisco, for example, could clean up the streets. We just need visits by more uh, foreign diplomats. To, to shame us oh, into going to say Chinese dictators. Uh, no, you know what? I'll call it foreign, <laughs> foreign respected foreign diplomats. There you go. Um, you know, of, of any country to visit. I think it's it's less the country itself, but the we'll call it the, the shame 
Um, and I, listen, I have friends whose um, significant others make them clean their houses before the cleaner comes over True. or the, their housekeeper comes over because they're so ashamed about how untidy their home is. It's a similar philosophy I feel like some of these politicians are using to be like, hey, our streets, they're terrible. And I don't want another country to, to think that we're terrible. But the whole point is that you have to live there. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to, you know, landlords and tenants, especially in the, in, in the role that we play with a lot of our clients, there's a growing interesting dynamic. I've, I've been an advocate with our, the landlords you work with to be incredibly selective on who they, who they lease their properties to. It used to be, okay, you got a good credit report, you know, the pay stub is oh, is oh good, um, you know, you seem like a fine individual, let's rent to you, we're good. Right, and then there's laws in place, rules in place that allow that transaction to be a little bit more seamless, less high touch. Now it's it's a matter of all right, will they mesh with the other tenants? Who else is in the building? What are their personal habits? And you know, not uh, not only who are they, but who are who do they uh, consort with? And do we think that in during hard times they're respectful of the property, their neighbors, and also will they pay their rent when things get tough? Right. I've had landlords that are very selective and even during the pandemic sent out proper notices, let them all know to say, hey, if there's a problem, please, before you go and get assistance, talk to me as a landlord and let's, let's talk about it. And, that, and because this individual had a great set of tenants and spent a lot of time arduously picking through who they wanted to place in this community that they were building, it panned out very, very well. Um, other landlords who are just renting to whoever and there's different styles of, of folks. We call it student housing, regular housing, and people of different socioeconomic strata. Without that community, like that key part is community, that it doesn't go very well. Because it's, I think it's easy for people to, I guess the, the term is just to screw over someone you don't know, right? You don't have a connection to. Right. And you know, the really, I think, potentially ugly part of that, because I've seen in my practice, I've seen a lot of landlords who are very frustrated now and frankly angry and a lot of the comment i hear is i'm going to really be more selective in my tenants Mm -hmm. and i wish that just meant they wanted to make sure they had the money because i think it also there's a hint of racism there and i think the way that comes out is not that someone is absolutely saying well i'm not going to rent to x group Mm -hmm because I think they're bums. I think what it boils down to is, to your exact point, I trust people who are more like me. I trust people who look like me. Mm-hmm. I trust people who think like me. And now that I've been burned, yeah. and I'm angry, and I you know, lost all this money, um, I'm going to want to rent someone who looks like me. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you're not renting to, you know, Hispanics or blacks. It could mean that maybe a, 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 an Indian person is going to be more inclined to rent to an Indian family, you know. And, and it could mean the awful scourge of racism I, I, of whites only renting to whites. But I mean, that's then a could possibility. That, could that be just the level of better cultural understanding, right? Because then you have Americans born in America renting in America, um, and there's different stratas of race, religion, and color, you know, um, that are a part of that. But then there's that other subsection of, of folks that are immigrants to America. And that also has, I think, a different social stratification. We even have a client that 
um, prefers folks that are um, newer to America. And mo while most landlords would shy away from them, they, um, because they have um, some immigrant history, they realize that these groups of, of immigrants, you know, from where they came from, the, the trials and tribulations it took to get to where they're at now, even though they're not of, of high socioeconomic status, have a level of, of um, integrity that is prevalent through that, um, through that culture. And it's important for them. Here, here's the problem with that statement, though, Ken. Remember that the prohibition on discrimination in housing is race, religion, national origin. Mm -hmm. So even if you're discriminating in favor of an immigrant family who may have immigrated from some place that you also immigrated from or that you see you know, something in their culture, that's prohibited. Hmm. You can't discriminate on those things. The only thing landlords should be looking at when they look at whether or not they're going to accept a tenant is do they what's their credit score like? Have they been evicted before? Um, you know, do they uh, do they have the income to pay the rent? Not how they look. Yep. Not how they smell. None of these things. You know, I, I had a landlord, you know, talk to me the other day, and he was saying, you know, well, you know, one of the things I do is I. I I look at their car, and I look at if the car's messy or not inside. Well, I guess. I guess you could discriminate on that. I, I, I told him I was uncomfortable with it, but, you know, okay, that's not race, religion, national origin, you know, and now we have to add to that, of course, you know, gender preferences and sexual orientation, but that's, you know, I don't think that's either here nor there. It's, you know, is their car messy? Well, okay. I mean, that's, that I'll is, give them that one. But, I mean, I guess. But you beyond can, that, it's really just supposed to be the numbers. Yeah. I, the other thing is, when you talk about personal hygiene in that in that uh, in that example, I do think it's important because how they care for their own personal property um, could be a, a relative gauge of how they care for your property. Another thing that I've, I've I've seen or read about as well too is people love to understand, and they always ask a poll of a crowd when you're leaving a parking lot and you have your cart. If the cart return is way down there, what do you do with it? How many people shove it on the sidewalk? And how many people empty the cart and run it back? So the I shove it on the sidewalk. Ah, so my wife runs it back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm one of the ones where I like to do uh, the skating of the uh, of the cart where you you run really fast and you jump on it and let it kind of let go. it take you. <laughs> but he put it back. But the idea is that it's indicative of you know when no one is watching, what is the individual's proclivity. And that speaks to how they maintain their household. It speaks to how they maintain um, or comport themselves, which is important these days for a landlord because that same behavior is going to be the foundation how they react when things get bad. Because I don't think many people intend to lease a place and then lose a job or lease a place and lose their spouse and lose income. But things happen, right, True. in life. True. And when that does happen, you look at the behavioral indicators that are underlying. And I think that's a, that's a true indicator. Now, if you can, if landlords have the opportunity to do that, I think that's very valuable, regardless of any of of looking at income level. Honestly, if there's if there's someone that uh, is a diligent worker and has incredible, in my my personal opinion, incredible personal fortitude, right, and has incredible integrity, they may be a better candidate to live in the community um, than someone that is, you know, 
has tons of income and can easily make all the payments, but is rather flippant and disrespectful of 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 not only the rules of the of the uh, property or or the other other neighbors. I think those are very good points, but I would have to honestly say, if I were counseling you as a landlord and you were thinking about using those things that it's really, really easy to cross over into applying race there. Yeah. And I would be I would be remiss to not tell you as your lawyer that that, you know, stick to the numbers, man. Don't so, don't don't get into people's appearance because how do you know that what you're really filtering is you know, their personal appearance and hygiene or their race. Mm-hmm. You know? You it's 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 a really tough line. And it's it's a mental line, and it's it's inside. And personally, as a lawyer, I don't like it. I think it has to be really, really just pure, uh, purely objective. Sure. So, what is the advice then? So, we're in this environment as it is now. Could it change? Obviously, could it change for the better? Sure. Could it change for the worse? Become more restrictive? Of course, it can. But what is the advice to a call it California-based landlord that's saying, hey, I either currently have property or I want to buy more property to, because housing is the career I've chosen. What's the advice there? What are the pitfalls that they might need to avoid? Well, the biggest piece of advice, I think, is that you have to understand that having a good outcome for a bad situation when it comes to rentals is having a good lease agreement to start with and most landlords use form lease agreements or car forms that are, uh, for want of a better word, garbage. They, they don't work at all. There's a lot of things that you can put into a lease agreement that are going to help you evict someone for cause now, that we have to have cause. And if you don't have the things in the lease agreement, you're going to have a lot of avenues foreclosed to you. So good lease agreement good procedures in place for your management to make sure that you are giving the proper notices, that you're posting the things that you're supposed to post, you're giving the three-day notices, you're calculating the three-day notices correctly, and then having a good legal team uh, that you can go to to do the do the deed when the time comes to get rid of the tenant. Man, John, it just seems like the average, average um, landlord really needs to engage with a proper professional. And it's not advocating for them to come to our law firm or, or, or accounting firm, but really it's the old adage of a penny wise and a pound foolish. Um, to, in order to navigate this landscape, I think it's incredibly important that landlords are very careful, especially if you're in California, to make the right decisions and to get right counsel in order to to actually just run their business, to earn a living these days, you know, to do it on your own, to do it in a solo, um, solo practice. Maybe that client in the in my example earlier made a good call, left the state and bought triple nets in another state, and just you know, washed their hands of it. That could have been, you know, that could have been the great move. It could be, and you know, at, at the end of the day, it all boils down to your tolerance for trouble, right? If you're a triple <laughs> net, you're not going to have a lot of trouble. That's right. If you're renting uh, Section Eight housing in the city of Los Angeles, yeah. you can count on a lot of trouble. Yeah. Well, I'm out. So um, we have a lot to say about California tenant law, and I think that it's ever-evolving. We'll probably end up talking about this again. I'm, I'm pretty sure of it. Oh, I'm sure. So for our listeners, I want to say thank you for joining us. Um, if you have any questions, comments, shoot us an email at podcast.taxis.com. We really appreciate you guys listening to us. Uh, like, subscribe, give us comments. Until next time.